You're listening to a podcast of spurious morality. Hello and welcome to a podcast of Spurious Morality. I'm Johnston uh, and I'm joined by Jimmy. Hello. Uh, and Greg. Hello. And we're, we're all back in the room, which means that we must be doing a season by season. Uh, and if I've, if I've done my maths correctly, it's season nine that we are up to. Um, we're, we're well into the Pertwee era now um, and it's, it's already as we discussed last time, sort of something very different to how it started off. Season 7 was pretty unique. Season 8 had a few hangovers from Season 7, but I think Season 9 is perhaps the first proper out-and-out and let series, it's fair to say, maybe. Um, it's absolutely their show now. There are no sort of... There's no hint of anything like that left of what was there before. Um, so I will start off, as ever, asking you guys which story is your favourite. So do you want to go first, Jimmy? Yeah, I think for me it's got to be The Curse of Peladon. I think I just love the off-earth stories and the historicals and, you know, most of the Pertwee era is present day, so it's always good to get a bit of variety from that. And I think the first Peladon story is just, yeah, such a good one. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic serial, and it was sort of quite topical at the time it came out as well. And I I particularly like the fact that it kind of the Ice Warriors aren't bad guys. It kind of you know up until this point, every Ice Warrior we've met has been a baddie, and actually they're a race where no, they're not necessarily all villains. So it's 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 good to sort of get a, a good Ice Warrior. Uh, what about you, Greg? What's your favourite? It's also the Curse of Peladon for me. Um, the Sea Devils is a close second, but I think ultimately it's just a bit too long. We'll talk about that later. But uh, yeah, Curse of Peladon is just a smart and, and tight uh, script and has some good performances. And it's, I think it's pretty clearly the best of this run. Uh, yeah, well, it's it's three for three. I absolutely agree. I think Curse is the best from this run. Um, however, I'm I'm one of the very few people um, in the world that prefers Monster of Peladon to Curse, but that's, I guess that's a discussion for season 11 when we get there. Um, but yeah, Curse, very, very good story. There's an awful lot to enjoy, and we will discuss it a little bit more shortly. Uh, but first of all, we'll go to uh, Day of the Daleks, which was, it, it's... It, it's quite a good Dalek story, I think. It's sort of nice. It's a nice, solid Dalek story. However, it's it's not the sort of grand return after four, five years off screen that that it could have been. I think it's it's just it's another Dalek story. They're like, let's bring the Daleks back, and they don't really do anything exceptional with that. They could have had any villain in that role, uh, I think. Um, but I'll 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 come back to that in a moment. Uh, Jimmy, what are your thoughts on Day of the Daleks? Well, I have to say I um, I watched the special edition version because um, those Dalek voices in the uh, default are pretty terrible. It's shocking how um, they forgot to control the machines or whatever, and you just get these bland voices like this. It's yeah, it's terrible. I couldn't I couldn't even watch it. I had to watch the special edition. But um, yeah, like you say. It's not really a great return for the Daleks. It's um, very much an average story. I, I think the other weird thing is that it's the Earth's been invaded by Daleks 200 years in the future, and, of course, we've already had that with the Dalek invasion of Earth, and so you get to the end of this story and it's like, 
oh, we've prevented the Daleks conquering Earth in 200 years. And it's like, well, actually, you haven't. You're, they've just invaded it differently. It's So it, it kind of makes the story fall apart a bit if you know the history. Um, but, yeah, I think the special edition helps. I think it's a pretty good story overall. But, yeah, lots of little um, weird things. Um, for example... I love at the start that scene where the Doctor and Joe pop up from the future or, and you see them and it's just the lab has a conveniently yellow CSO wall behind them for them to appear on and it just looks weird. And then you've got the Doctor's lab when you pan over and later. He's got a weapons testing range in the middle of his lab and it just doesn't seem like a really doctory thing. I mean, he's supposed to be working on TARDIS, trying to get it working again. And, oh, yeah, I've got a bit of spare time for some weapons testing right in the same room. It's, yeah, it's a bit weird. And I noticed with the special edition as well, I thought originally it might have been a fault with it. At the start of episode two and three, at the end of where the cliffhanger was, you can hear the theme music start again in the background. And I thought, is this a fault they've accidentally introduced with the special edition? So I went back to the DVD and no, it's on the DVD special edition. So I went back to the original and no, it's on the original version. And it's just something I've never seen mentioned before, but it's really glaringly obvious to me and it sort of it shows a bit of shoddy workmanship, so it's a bit of a pity, but, yeah, most of the story's good. The other thing being the Ogrons, they're a bit, uh, I mean, they weren't handled very well and, I mean, with it being tied into the Dalek invasion of Earth time, they could have even brought back the Robo-Men, but, um, of course, that wouldn't look as good in the days after the Cybermen had been introduced, but it would have been a nice continuity thing that... Yeah, the story's all right despite that, but just it's not as brilliant as it should have been for a return of the Daleks after such a long time. And yeah, that sort of cliffhanger sting uh, at the end of the reprises, it, it's interesting. its I can only assume it was like a deliberate decision, uh, but it's a, it's a bit of a strange one, really. Um, Greg, what about you? What do you think of Day of the Daleks? Well, I mean, just to start, you know, Jimmy was just saying that, you know, the doctor having a weapons testing range seems a little undoctorish for him. I'll tell you what seems really undoctorish for him is when in the middle of the story, he picks up a gun and shoots an Ogron. Like, what? I mean, it, it, it really, that moment really doesn't feel that out of character for Pertwee or in the context of the show as we've watched it. Like, the Doctor's never been one to, to shy away from violence when necessary up till this point, but it, especially if you're, you know, a, a longtime viewer of the of the revived series and, you know, the man who never would and all of that, then to just see him just casually gun down a random ogre on is like, what? What? Um, so that moment's interesting. I like this story as a concept. Um as a Dalek story, I think it's pretty terrible because the Daleks don't do anything for three episodes and then they kind of half-heartedly try to storm the mansion and it's very obvious they only have you know, three of them or whatever and it just doesn't look threatening at all. I mean, it, it's somewhat interesting to see Unit fight the Daleks, but it's just so half-hearted and it just really doesn't come off. But the the concept of the story is really good. You know, Doctor Who has not to this point really done too many episodes that play around with the concept of time travel, and this one does. Um, it's also a story that really embraces like units roles in international organization and it portrays an earth that is on the brink of nuclear conflict. And it actually makes that feel a little bit convincing in ways that, you know, as much as I love the mind of evil, that, that seemed that international situation seemed a little more James Bondy, whereas this one seems much more realistic if, if such a thing is possible. Um, so I liked that. And, you know, I, I, I love the, the grandfather paradox, you know, you, you did it yourselves like that. That's a, that's an all time great moment in, in the Pertwee era for sure. But yeah, I mean, why is it day of the Daleks? I don't know. Like I said, they don't, they don't do anything for three episodes. Like it's much more interesting to see the society that's grown up around them than to see the Daleks themselves. So there's a lot to enjoy here, but it's it's kind of kind of rickety and and oh yeah, you know uh, Jimmy also mentioned you know the scene at the beginning with the doctor and Joe meeting their future selves and that's great, but then I mean weren't they supposed to then be on the other side of that at the end of the story? Like isn't that how that's supposed to work? But 
yeah, it's not there. So I think they did. I, I can't remember whether it was scripted or recorded, or but the, there was definitely supposed to be the sort of the punchline to that scene at the start. Um, but it, it's it is an odd little scene, and actually, we had something very similar in uh, Ambassadors of Death with the Doctor and Liz sort of flicking a few seconds into the future here and there. So I guess it's a callback to that, something similar to that. But yeah, it, it's it's quite strange that there's no punchline. And actually, as a story, it does end very, very abruptly. Um, the Daleks get blown up and then the Doctor tells all the humans to be good and that's it, end of story. Um, so I wonder if there was a, an overrunning issue or something like that because it is a... Even by classic Doctor Who standards, it's a very, very abrupt ending. Um, it's it's definitely an interesting story. I think it's you know it works well because it's a Dalek story that does something slightly different. Um, I think the fact that Terry Nation didn't write it probably helps. Um, yeah, I do like a Terry Nation story, but this is sort of a rare early classic series uh, look at what can be done with with the Daleks without him. Of course, we've had a couple of David Whittaker stories as well in the second Doctor era, but yeah, it's it's a curious one. What I also think is curious is the fact that when they did decide they were bringing back the Daleks to Doctor Who after such a long time, they kind of, well, they did. They got the bloke that wrote Planet of Giants to do it. It's, you know, of all writers that have ever written Doctor Who before, which one should we go for? the one that wrote a story so boring they had to get rid of an episode before it was broadcast. Bit strange. Uh, but yeah, it's it's an, it's an enjoyable story. Um, I do think the special edition works wonders. I really do think that it's, it, it's the definitive version of the story as far as I'm concerned now. Um, and I have to admit that I thought it was a bit of an odd choice to get the special edition treatment when it was first announced for the DVD way back when. But actually, when I first watched it, I completely understood why they'd chosen to do it. Um, and it was definitely, it was sort of done with love. And it does correct a few of the things that we've sort of suggested are a bit of a problem. Like the fact that they only had three Daleks originally, but this one kind of gives us more and that sort of thing. Um, so we'll move on. We'll move on to the... The story that we have all agreed is uh, the best in season nine, uh, and that is Curse of Peladon. Um, it's it's always sort of stuck out to me as a bit odd how at the start of this story, the Doctor and Joe are just in the TARDIS casually on a trip, like that's what they do every week, even though at this stage the Doctor is still stranded on Earth. Um, it very much sort of sets out uh, something that we see again in this series in that yeah, we're going to do Alien Planets again now and we're not going to make a big song and dance about the Doctor being trapped on Earth. Um, it's it's a great story, though. It's it's another, obviously, the Doctor has been um, forced by the Time Lords to do this or manipulated by the Time Lords into fulfilling the role that he does. Um, but it's, it's a lot of fun. I think it is a fun story as well, and Peladon is such a really well established planet there's some excellent world building it's it's definitely one of the best developed planets and societies in classic doctor who uh so jimmy your thoughts on the curse of peladon yeah um as we all said it's the best story of the season but um i think there's definitely lots of tiny little niggles that um uh tiny flaws with it that i've found but um I, I love it despite them. It's such a brilliant dynamic. It's a great, interesting planet. And they set it up really well, and the Doctor and Joe's dynamic is pretty much at its best. But there's lots of weird little things. Like um, uh, one thing is the sort of the way it handles the um, dynamic of the joining the Federation thing. There's some sort of odd things there, like, um, for instance, Ice Warriors being there and them actually being the good guys was a great fake out. I loved that. But um, it does kind of make the Doctor look a little racist. It's like, it's the Ice Warriors. They're definitely the bad ones. And, I mean, you can see why you'd see that watching the show, like, as a fan. But it just comes across a bit badly. And there's a few other little things like that, like Peladon, King Peladon, 
he's they they mention about his earth blood giving him civilization and taking him out of the primitivism and it's a bit ooh, dodgy but um it's yeah it the story works despite that but but that's another thing like the the alien delegates the martian delegates get names which yeah they had them back in the trout and era too but then you've got arcturus and alpha centauri who were just called by their planet's name and it it just so underdeveloped it's like it i think the story would have worked a lot better if they developed the different federation races like they did a great job of the ice warriors and the, the peladonians but arcturus and alpha centauri are kind of badly handled there but um and then later on the pit fight is so drawn out it's uh, a bit over the top but um yeah, despite all these faults and other little things like the strings holding Alpha's lower arms up as he lifts his higher ones. Um, but, yeah, there's lots of good stuff to enjoy and definitely the dynamic between the Doctor and Joe and Joe and Peladon, uh, some of the highlights. Like, I love Joe just jumping into being considered a princess and casually insulting her pilot's bad landing and all that. And the other nice little touch is Joe and Peladon's relationship and the way things could have easily gone differently, got handled so well. And I think the highlight of that for me is the final scene when Joe tells Peladon that she's not really a princess, but as soon as the bird doctor walks in the room to leave, Peladon tells her goodbye, Your Highness. And I just love that he's like, maybe he doesn't, he, he assumes the doctor doesn't even know she's not a real princess. And even though she's rejected him, he still tries to cover for her there. And I just thought that was a sweet little moment. And yeah, quite nice. So. Yeah, it's a great story overall, but as I say, lots of faults, but um, the story overcomes them all. The story manages to be thoroughly enjoyable despite all these little issues with it. Yeah, I suppose that sort of looking back on it now, 50 years later, I do think that um, obviously just sort of there's a bit there that's a bit sketchy and wouldn't happen today. Yes, I agree with that. Um, but yeah, it, it it does have its faults, it does have its problems, but it's still a thoroughly enjoyable story. Uh, Greg, what are your thoughts on it? Well, as I said, I think it's the best story of the season. What I like about it is, you saw this with Brian Hales writing the two Trout and Ice Warrior stories, where the the characters had some distinct motivations that weren't completely black and white. And that's definitely brought back here. Um, certainly, you know, Arcturus is, is something close to a villain, but you know, even like Hepesh, for example, is, is, is driven by an, an understandable, not, not acceptable, but an understandable motivation. He's not a, he's not a cackling, you know, megalomaniac. He's, he's trying to, you know, preserve the, 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 the traditions of his society and he's, you know, trying to, you know, to use the old conservative phrase, stand before history yelling stop kind of thing. But, um, and, and, you know, and setting him against Peladon, who is, who is quite well portrayed as a young, you know, more progressive idealist King who really sees the benefits of, you know, opening his planet up to the rest of the galaxy it, it it's 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 a more interesting conflict than we often get um, because normally we'd have you know just one person being super you know noble and heroic and the other one being just outright evil whereas here you know Peladon for example like his relationship with Joe you know he he's able to he's com- able to completely disassociate his political responsibilities from his personal responsibilities and so he doesn't even grasp really why why Joe wouldn't understand how he could sentence the doctor to death and then propose marriage to her. Um, and I, I, I like those little notes. I, I like that they set up the ice warriors, you know, to be bad guys and then reveal that they're not. I mean, from, you know, a modern perspective, having had so many ice warrior stories, you just at this point, whenever there's an ice warrior story, one of the mysteries is, are they going to be good or bad in this one? But this is the story that started that and it, and it really works well. And then it's inverted again when monster of Peladon comes around. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I think it's, it's, you know, it's an interesting society that they portray. It, it kind of continues with day of the Daleks where it's showing 
politics being difficult and messy and dangerous. And, and for all those reasons, you know, I, I, I like it a lot. I also think it's, it's easily the best story for Katie Manning since she joined the program. I think her performance in this is, is really good. And yeah, it's, it's a really good story. You could argue, I suppose, that this is the first time um, Joe gets some really good material. Uh, it's definitely a Joe story. And there are a few other Joe stories as we go on, but this is perhaps the the first one where she's not just the the ask questions, hold test tubes and make coffee kind of companion that she's described as in within the first couple of minutes of her her appearing in season eight. Um yeah, it, it's the only real fault with this story for me is the as Jimmy mentioned before, the pit fight, it goes on for way too long. It is it's as paddy as Doctor Who ever gets. It, it's ridiculous. Um, it, it it genuinely feels longer and more drawn out than sort of Planet of the Spiders Part Six, relying on a very, very, very long cliffhanger reprise. It's something like six, seven minutes, isn't it? Um, so yeah, it's it, it's the only thing that lets the story down is they were obviously running out of material at the end of part three um but it's it, it's a minor quibble you know doctor who there are many many long drawn out sequences that outstay the welcome and it's unfair to single this one out i think um okay we shall move on um and next up is the sea devils where we get a nice sort of look at where the master ended up after the demons and I quite like the whole first episode, visiting the master in prison, that kind of thing. It's uh, it's sort of really well done, and he's going out of his way to make it look like he is locked up and he is a prisoner, and of course he's got the entire prison under his control, effectively. Um, it's a sequel to the Silurians. Uh, I, I think it tries to sort of make the same moral points uh offer the same moral debate that the silurians did but i just i don't think the sea devils does it as effectively i think it's more interested in sort of oh look monsters um which is something that this era doctor who does quite a bit um so jimmy uh what are your thoughts on the sea devils yeah i definitely enjoyed the story but um yeah it's definitely not one of the best it's got a few faults but the best thing, as always, with his stories, Delgado, he is absolutely brilliant in this and it, he always raises up the quality of any story he's in pretty much. So that was definitely a highlight. Um, one thing I've noted down, one of my first dot points I wrote when I was watching the story is that the music is absolutely appalling. And I mean, it's the Pertwee era, so you get bad music quite a bit, but this is the worst, I think, in his era that it gets. And oh, it's irritating. It really drags down an otherwise great story. But, yeah, it's enjoyable, and um, it's certainly the dynamic with the Sea Devils is, um, it, I think it's better, ha well handled. It's not better than the Silurians, or probably arguably not as good, but it, it, it manages quite well. It's, it still manages to get the same sort of points across, I find. Um, other weird things I noticed were, like, at the start, when the Doctor just casually goes from the prison straight to the naval base and just sort of dumps Joe behind him with no goodbye, no sea lad, no whatever. He just sort of buggers off and leaves her in the lurch and it just seems a bit weird. Like maybe in the early days it would have made more sense that he do that. But, you know, they've sort of built up their Doctor Companion dynamic. They're really close these days and yet he suddenly just abandons her for no reason. It just seems a bit weird and... The other weird thing with the island was what was with all those doorless cars? They looked so stupid. It was like, uh, we haven't got enough budget. We'll just buy half a car and re reuse all these half cars that are missing their doors. It, it just looked so silly. But, um, yeah, it still manages to be a good story. I love the um, sword fight between the Doctor and the Master and the jokes like the taking the um, plate of sandwiches or whatever and taking a pause to eat and the sword's just being conveniently there, which, you know, doesn't make much sense, but, hey, it leads to a great scene, so it's pretty good. Um, and the other thing is that um, 
that I noticed was that that point where the doctor's tied to the chair and Joe's outside talking to him through the window and all I could think of was the Ten and Donna, their famous conversation through a window scene and it works out a bit better for Joe because they actually don't get caught but just a funny little parallel I thought of. Um, and, yeah, back to food again with the sword fight. The other thing is, it, it, and it follows up to Day of the Daleks earlier in the season, it, it just seems like qualification of unit is to be a bit of a dick about food because first, back in Day of the Daleks, you have Yates stealing the food that Joe was about to give Benjamin, and then here you have the Doctor just taking that plate of sandwiches from Joe and giving it to literally everyone else and leaving her with none. It's, it's almost like there's this arc of... Every unit member's got to be a bit of a dick when it comes to sharing their food. It's just a weird thing that they seem to make a recurring sort of point to do of. But, um, yeah, um, the other thing is that minefield scene. I love how the Doctor just collapses over the barbed wire and let Joe run all over him. It's just, there's got to have been a better way to get across than that. But it's just sweet that he puts himself in all the danger and just lets her literally walk all over him. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a great story, great fun. But um, yeah, as I say, lots of weird little things that um, make you think, "What were they doing?" <laughs> yeah, it's it's one of those stories that does have some absolutely brilliant little moments. Um, you know, the sandwiches and the that kind of thing. And I think that's it is something that sort of gives it quite a lot of charm and the doctor is a bit cheeky in this one. He does have a bit of a sense of humor, which is something that kind of comes and goes with Pertwee's doctor. Sometimes he's sort of very witty and other times he's very serious, but it doesn't seem to be in any particular context. Just one story he's written one way, another he's written another. But I think this one is kind of the third doctor. It is most third doctorish perhaps. Um, I kind of wish they'd have played a little more into the sequel to the Silorians thing, you know, about how the Doctor will see what happened at the end of Silorians as a failure and you know, that kind of thing. It doesn't quite get touched on in the way it could have done, but it's, there was definitely potential for some great character stuff there that I do think Sea Devils misses. Uh, Greg, what do you think of it? It's a it's a close second for me in in season nine is the best story of the of the year. Um, it definitely has some flaws. It's too long uh, for one thing. It, it really does not need to be six episodes long. There are a lot of instances of obvious padding, which is something we're going to come back to in all three of the six parters of this season. But uh, it's it's definitely dragged out. But there's a lot about it that works. Um, I think bringing the the Navy in as the military attache for this is very effective because A, it allows them to use all these different Navy ships and, you know, there's a hovercraft and all this stuff and they really get to show off what would be an unrealistically high budget for the show with all this stuff. So that's cool. Um, it's also nice to have the doctor paired up with an organization that isn't so ready to accept what he says you know he's not part of the system in this one he's kind of this you know crazy mad scientist outsider who's coming in and talking about you know evil masterminds and so on though that being said it's a little weird that the people at the naval base aren't more familiar with the master given that he's the only prisoner in the prison and he's an international criminal, and everyone apparently wanted him executed. And the Navy commander and the prison warden go golfing together. Like, why wasn't there more conversation about this? And then another thing that I think is kind of funny is at the very start of the story, when the doctor and Joe are on the boat going out to the prison, like, it is filmed as though they are out in the middle of nowhere, like they are at sea, you know, they're going to this remote prison. And then you find out that, well, okay, it's not that remote because there's also a Navy base on the island. Oh, okay. Uh, and actually there's also a town. Uh, and then you see like shots of the water and there's like 5,000 boats in the water. <laughs> and it's just, it's not remote at all. And like the whole island thing just doesn't really come off after that. Um, so they, they really don't nail the isolation thing very well. Um, 
the other thing is 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 like like you were saying the they're really trying to recreate the sea devil or sorry the silurians here um it's the same type of conflict the sea devils have the same stories the silurians the doctor is advocating for peace and it just really seems perfunctory like you said it's it's more about the monsters and the action sequences and, and looking cool because it it really does the doctor's portrayal in this is not very flattering honestly he's he's so gung ho about get forming a peace between humanity and the sea devils when no one seems that interested in it. I mean, the, the, there is no like hesitation among the humans. The, uh, I, I can't remember the name of the, the civil servant who, who comes in to take over near the end, which is a fantastic performance, by the way, like him just like dismissively, like eating breakfast after ordering, you know, a nuclear war is, uh, is, is a more unsympathetic portrayal than we've had with some of these, uh, politician characters before but overall like the moral you know conflict here you know the, the humans just immediately attack the sea devils um the doctor like talks the sea devil leader into negotiating but then that immediately falls apart and then the doctor's like but we should all be at peace and it's like very clearly not going to happen and it just makes him seem kind of ineffectual and i, I don't think that works very well um I'm really like complaining a lot here for a story that I like. Um, but no, I mean, the, the sea devils are, are, are kind of, they, they look better than they should really. I think they work pretty well. I think the action sequences are really good. I think Pertwee's really good in this. I think, I think you're finally starting to see like some real affection between the doctor and Joe. So when he does like, you know, pick on her a little bit, it feels more like affectionate rather than just the doctor being an, an ass. Um, so I think that works really well. I'm happy to see that's developing and the master is absolutely fantastic. Like his Delgado and Pertwee in this together are great. Like it's, it's a really fun story to watch. It's just, it's too long and it, it really mishandles the, the moral conflict that it's trying to present. Yeah. It's, um, it's not as well done as the Silurians was and it feels longer than the Silurians as well which is weird obviously because Silurians is an episode longer um but yeah it, it seems like a very simplified bare bones version uh but it's it, it like you say it, it is a very good story I'd have it as second on my list after curse for this season as well um there's just it does go on too long. Um, I, I remember when I very, very first saw it, and it got to the episode five cliffhanger, and I could have sworn that it was episode six. I was really surprised there was a cliffhanger because it had been going on for so long. I'd watched so much story. Surely this had to be the end. Um, but yeah, it's 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 a lot of fun. It does do action incredibly well. You know, they they really did. Uh, they were really lucky with cooperation of the Navy. It's an action by Havoc story, um, and they sort of enhance it a great deal as well. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a really good bit of Doctor Who. Um, and it's, you know, quite rightly the Sea Devils are remembered as one of the great one of the great monsters. Um we'll move on to The Mutants, a story that's in some ways it's really clever in other ways it's really really stupid um it's i i find it interesting i find it curious i i don't think it's as bad as its reputation suggests but if sea devils felt slow this is positively glacial um so little happens for so much of the story but it does have really interesting villains. It does have an interesting sort of moral debate. Um, there are some excellent performances in it, some really good performances in it. Um, and I think there's an awful lot there to like. I think it's just dragged down by the the six-episode runtime. And honestly, in this season, they'd have been better off making an extra four-parter instead of having six parters um they should have just gone for six serials keep the time monster at six parts because it just about justifies it 
Um, but yeah, Mutants just goes on for way too long. Uh, so, Jimmy, what are your thoughts on it? Yeah, definitely, as you say, a bit longer than it should be. Um, but I think it's a good story despite that. Um, the whole lots of great concepts, like the way the planet works and it's got 500-year seasons and they evolve to change each way through the season. It's Yeah, I like the concepts, but, yeah, it really drags out. It really goes very slowly. Um, and also at the start, it's, again, just like before the previous story, Doctor wants to just go off to the planet without Joe, and it's it's odd at this stage. Like when she'd first joined him in like season eight, it sort of made sense when he was a bit distant. But by this point, he shouldn't be telling her, "Oh no, I'll go by myself." Like it just it just feels weird that he doesn't trust her more. It's yeah, very odd moment. But um, I do like the the, sorry. I do like their dynamic across the rest of the story. Like, I love that little conversation about Earth in this time is just all grey and technology's ruined it and technology's gone too far sort of thing. It's it, it's sort of a bit of a weird message to have, but um, you can see why it's, especially in the 70s and the way things were going then, that you can see why they'd say that. But um, it's, yeah, the Doctor plays it well. Um, the other weird things were like, the hand palm controls to open the doors, just sort of taking anyone's hand. Like they let mutants in, they let Salonians in, they let the overlords humans in. It's It just seemed weird that they even bothered with having the palm reader there if it was just going to open for any palm. Except then in the final episode, there's suddenly a lock that you can put on it. And it's just like, why didn't they have that sooner? And then you've got stubs and cotton that... They have a great dynamic across the story, but when they've just realised that they've caught and the marshal could be on to them and they're walking to this interview with him where he's going to confront them about it and they ask each other if, oh, is the marshal on to us? And they're standing about one step away from the marshal's guard. <laughs> it's so ridiculous. Like, oh, does the marshal know we're betraying him? Oh, hi, guard. <laughs> uh, it was just such a silly moment, but... Um, yeah, um, other than that, yeah, brilliant story. Oh, and the um, when the uh, colony ship up in space blows its side, the depressurization is so badly realised. Like, it's first they're all holding on and, yeah, it makes sense, but then they sort of let go and walk, walk out a bit. It's just a bit too, I don't know, like I don't think they could have realised it better at that time, but maybe they should have done it a bit differently. I don't know how, but, yeah. It definitely wasn't handled well. And then you go to go back to the evolution thing and how they change into mutants and that, I think it, they sort of missed a trick in not sort of showing what other forms they could have had and showing how they work differently. And then it's suddenly weird that, like, okay, if they're adapting to survive the different climates or whatever, then, yeah, maybe these mutants make sense to survive in the hotter weather. But then Kai becomes the... Uh, glowing rainbow angel avatar of gay pride at the end and can just fly through walls and zap people to death and do anything. And it's like, okay, so that was the next season after. So that's how you cope with, so that's how you cope with uh, autumn, is it? Um, what, what about the autumns of this planet made you into a superhero? <laughs> so yeah, it's a bit weirdly handled there, but um, it's, it's still good. I mean, the story, you manage to enjoy it despite all these things. Like, it's obvious re-watching it and you pick up on every little fault, but I think the story was enjoyable enough that despite its overlong length and padding, I think it was still a good story overall. Yeah, it's it seems to be the one from this season that really gets singled out as being full of padding, but actually... You know, Curse of Peladon has the pit fight that goes on forever. The Sea Devils is padded out left, right and centre. It's it's a really unfair reputation. Um, it's guilty of it, certainly, but so's everything around it. You know, we're going to go into the Time Monster in a minute, which has an entire episode of the Doctor and the Master bickering like children through TARDIS screens. Um, it, it's It's padding at its most ridiculous. Um, so yeah, the mutants doesn't do anything that the other stories don't do in terms of padding. It's a bit of an odd one. Um, 
in terms of uh, you mentioned the, the sort of depressurization sequence um it's it's another example of bob baker and dave martin writing something that's just completely unachievable by the production team um they did it they did a fair bit of it in clause of axos they they've done it in this um three doctors as well i think you know it works well but it's it's very ambitious it's an ambitious script an entire building being sucked into a black hole that sort of thing um so yeah it's it's something i think that the writers are definitely guilty of doing and it just seems a bit daft that nobody turned around to them at all and went we can't really do this guys can you can you try and do it another way uh, they just kind of pushed ahead with what was written. It's a bit strange. Um, Greg, what are your thoughts on the mutants? Well, that's really the Bob Baker, Dave Martin thing is coming up with ridiculous concepts that are just not doable on a BBC budget and then Doctor Who pushing ahead and trying to do them anyway. But I think what sets this one apart from their other scripts is how overtly political it is and and how you know nuanced a lot of the characterization is. Like this is it's a it's a smart and and more subtle story than I think it gets credit for. It's it has this reputation as being just this you know horrendous episode of, of, of Doctor Who. And I I I hadn't watched it in a long time precisely because I kind of had a vague recollection of it not being very good. But I enjoyed watching it this time. I I was actually surprised by it. I mean, I, I will not deny that it is very heavily padded. There's no question about that. But even though, you know, you've got, you know, a character in the Marshall who's who's certainly more of the, the black and white villain type, again, you know, this is someone at least, you, you, you've seen this sort of archetype in in, in characters before, you know, the, the, the tin pot dictator, you know, the the guy that's been nominally in charge for for some time, and all of a sudden he's, you know, going to have that power taken away from him. And even though he, I'm sure he's, you know, made a lot of money or whatever they do in, in this time period, he could very easily retire based on his career as the as the the leader um, or as the head of security or whatever it is. He he doesn't want to do that and he desperately clings to power and, it, and it's, and it's a really interesting portrayal in that regard. Um, but at the same time, like, you know, the, the, the Salonians, I mean, they're, they're not, they're not portrayed as, you know, entirely blameless and, and noble and so on. I mean, right at the, you know, near the beginning of the story, um, they, they they start a uh, a demonstration during the during the the speech to them, and without even realizing that the speech is going to grant them their freedom, and that the you know the overseers are going to leave um, because they listen to the intro to the speech, which by necessity has to be this self-aggrandizing thing for the overseers about how they brought you know, civilization to this planet and they, you know, they modernized it and so on. Um, and so the, 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 the natives at that point hear that and they're like, Oh God, here we go again. Like what, you know, what, what nonsense are they about to pull? And so they, they disrupt the thing and then there's the assassination and so on. And, and you realize that like, if, if that hadn't happened, the story would have just been over. The overseers would have just left, but Unfortunately, that's not what happened. And I, I, I like things like that. You know, I, I like where there's a little more subtlety in, in the portrayals. And, and that sort of that carries through the story, you know. And I think they really seed the idea of like the evolution of the Salonians through the through the story is really well done. Um, you know, it's it's different points of that revelation come at, you know, different points of the story. It it, it moves along pretty well. It's just again like I, I am really looking forward to the point at which they finally realize that four parts is the ideal length for the Doctor Who story because this is just like this is just dragged out a lot. It's dragged out even more than the Sea Devils, um, but it's not dragged out as much as the next story. But we'll get to that in a second. Yeah, it's 
it, 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 the six-part thing at this stage just isn't working. It, it did work when there were two, three companions in the TARDIS and they could all go off and have their own separate little adventures and one of them could even go on holiday and not be in the story for two weeks. But the way that Doctor Who's production has changed by this stage doesn't match up to the the, the uh, way they're, they're still producing serials, the way they're serialising and distributing these episodes. And it's, you know, we don't get rid of six-parters altogether until season 18. We're still quite a long way off that. But um, what we what we're getting here is is genuinely showing that the six part thing just doesn't doesn't work as a regular thing i think if someone comes up with a story that can justify six part almost 3 hour runtime then you know fine let's do it it should happen but this is this is just filling six episodes in the schedule um for the sake of it in any way possible um which perfectly leads me on to the time monster <laughs> I, I i i don't know what's going on with this story it's it's full of weird amazing out there ridiculous ideas it kind of has the master at his strangest it contradicts something that the same writer uh, wrote into the demons just one series earlier and it, it's there's just it it's bonkers. It it's padded. It's bonkers. It's it's Doctor Who at its most mad. Um, it always does feel sort of like a a standout story for all the wrong reasons. Um, it's it's still somewhat enjoyable. It's still quite captivating, but. It, it's it's Doctor Who at its oddest. It really is. Uh, Jimmy, what are your thoughts on the Time Monster? I actually think that, yes, it's one of the poorer Pertwee stories, but um, on this rewatch, it had been so long since I'd last seen it and I remembered it being really terrible. I set my expectations really low and I actually ended up enjoying it a lot more than I remembered in, from past viewings. It's, yeah, it's it's very flawed. It's one of the poor Pertwee stories, but I think it's got lots of good stuff to recommend it. And again, well, like we've said with a lot of Pertwee stories, there's some cool stuff badly executed, like, um, or at least not as well executed as it could have been, like the, um, the idea of doing a story that's actually set in Atlantis and in its heyday, and, or the idea of having the TARDISes inside each other. And, you know, um, I think the problem with it is they spend a bit too long on the sort of, sci-fi all we're building a machine that teleports things and they sort of spent three whole episodes on that before they got to the atlantis stuff or the tardis stuff and i think it's not so much that it doesn't justify six episodes it's just they should have divided it differently you know do one or two episodes on that expand the tardis stuff and write it a bit better and expand the atlantis stuff and handle it a bit differently um but yeah i think it's um Overall, not as bad as most people would say. There's, again, lots of little flaws and faults, like um, the radiation suit where you've got to put on this big, bulky radiation suit and the hat, and you walk in with no gloves and wide open sleeves. I mean, I'm not sure how you think that's going to protect you. Um, but, yeah, um, lots of good stuff. Like, I liked the Brigadier's expression at the start when the doctor's like, I've seen the master. Oh, where? in a dream and the bridge is just like rolling his eyes like what the hell do i have to deal with now <laughs> or again for the brigadier later um what was it um when the master does the brigadier's voice and benton sees through it so like the brigadier doesn't call us um my dear fellow and no that's the oldest trick in the book eh? they do some clever stuff there and um Again, the other thing, like I said earlier, the TARDIS is inside each other. The thing that made that not work for me wasn't so much how drawn out it was as the floor that, okay, the Doctor's TARDIS is now inside the Master's TARDIS and the Master's TARDIS is inside the Doctor's TARDIS, but at the same time, the Master's TARDIS is still in the lab. Like, isn't it supposed to be inside the Doctor's TARDIS? And so, yeah, they, I think they could have done a bit better with that and handled a bit better. Um, but, again, lots of other good stuff like... Um, 
when the brigadier at the end cliffhanger at the end of is it episode three or four i can't remember but when the brigadier thinks mike yates has been killed and when he stops going mike and he's just got sorry when he stops going yates and he's like mike and it's like seeing the brigadier actually you know care about his soldiers as men and yeah i i think they did a good job there um and for me, the Atlantis stuff, actually, I was expecting, I seem to remember it being really terrible, but it, it wasn't as bad as I thought. I mean, it's an interesting society they've got there, an interesting sort of setting. They, The whole palace coup thing with the master manipulating the queen and basically wooing her and acting like he's in love with her and her believing it and getting betrayed. And I think the Atlantis stuff was actually really well handled. And I, I loved the Doctor's daisiest daisy speech, of course. That's always one of the uh, fascinating things of the show. And I, I love at the end the Master being so desperate, begging for his freedom. And you can, it's the way Delgado plays it, like he plays really very hammerly, very like not like him. Usually he plays things very well, but it's almost like he's taking the piss and like he knows the Doctor's going to rescue him. And so he's just oh, Doctor, poor me, sort of thing. Um, I think it actually works really well and it contrasts nicely with how he's usually so much more dark and suave and just the way he drops all that to beg for his freedom works pretty good. Um, yeah, overall, I I really actually thoroughly enjoyed the story more than I expected and more than I remembered. It's still one of the poorer Pertwees, but it's not not all that bad actually yeah it's it's certainly not my least favorite story of the era um but it's 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 odd yeah i said that before i'm I'm sticking to it It, it's it's a very odd story it's very out there it does actually have those some lovely little moments so you're right about the brigadier sort of dropping the military professional demeanor and going mike mike i'd never really cottoned onto that before but yeah that's that's a great little moment and it, it sort of really hammers home the the concept of the unit family um, and this is of course the last story to feature all of them it's the last story to have the dr joe the brig mike benton and the master um and it's it's a bit of a shame that like as a concept the unit family goes out with a bit of a whimper it's you know we see we see Mike injured. Benton spends half the story as a baby. The brigadier doesn't do particularly much. Um, and the Doctor and Joe chase the Master off to Atlantis. It's it, it's a good way of, I guess, of making a six-parter not feel as overly long uh, as it could. You know, a location switch, it's done very successfully a few times it's certainly done quite successfully a few times in the tom baker era um but i just it, it does still feel slow it does still feel padded and that that fourth episode it sort of walks a tightrope between really really over the top padding and just being so genius about how blase the whole thing is the Doctor and the Master just bickering from their TARDISes. Um, also, the TARDIS, it looks weird. I don't like the the washing up bowl interior that, thankfully, we only see in this story. I just don't think it works. I think it, it looks like it was designed in a hurry. Um, and the TARDIS that we'd had up until this stage has looked so much better. Um, Greg, what are your thoughts on the Time Monster? I reserve the right to change my mind over the next two seasons, but this is probably going to end up being my least favorite story of the Pertwee era. Um, I actually had kind of the opposite reaction as Jimmy. Like I kind of remembered, this is another one I hadn't watched in a long time. And I kind of remembered having like a good time with it. And this time I was watching it and was just so, so bored. Oh my goodness. Is it slow? It's probably the most obviously padded Doctor Who story to this point. I mean, obviously we've had longer stories that have had a lot of padding in them, so it's hard to objectively measure it, but this one really feels padded out. Um, What I like about it is, like you guys were saying, very bonkers out there ideas, which is always a good feature of Doctor Who for me. Um, The 
the the stuff with Kronos and the and the Chronovore in and of itself isn't all that interesting, but tying it to not only ancient Greece but Atlantis is a really fun idea. Um, so that that's exciting. I mean, like you said, we've got the whole you know unit family together, and you can at the very least tell that the cast is really enjoying themselves making this story. But it it feels like they're all in on the joke and we're not. Like there's a lot of you know winking and nodding in this, and just Jimmy mentioned the the daisiest daisy scene, for example. Um, that's uh, when we're talking about padding. Like that's a great little moment. Like that that's a really like you pull that out. That's a really like little definitional moment for the third Doctor, but. It's very obviously there just to fill time. Like it, it's it has basically nothing to do thematically with the story around it. Like it's just thrown in there because they need to fill out the episode, and so the Doctor and Joe need to just have a conversation. And you know, so again, like it doesn't mean that every moment of padding is inherently bad because again, this one's a very nice little character moment for the Doctor. But like it's it's the only it, it's a story where so much of the padding is just screamingly obvious. Like so many scenes where characters just sit down and have pointless conversations with each other. Um, even like when it shifts to Atlantis, like it, it's even there, like right from the get go, it just feels drawn out. Um, the, the whole bit with the, the Minotaur, like that does, that doesn't need to be a, like, I, I don't, I'm, I'm almost speechless by how, how little of this story even remotely needs to be in it. I mean, as, as crazy as it sounds like this could be a two parter, like why it's six, like, what are you doing? Like, just, just please stop with these endless interminable six parters. I, Oh, I, I don't know. I just, I don't like it. I think that is, it is fair enough. Yeah. It's, I think it, it, there is a good story in there. There are a lot of good ideas in there. I would say that they kind of throw everything but the kitchen sink at this one, but they literally throw the kitchen sink at it as well. It's on the TARDIS walls. It's just so weird. It's like, you know, you mentioned the Minotaur, and it's like, yeah, there's a Minotaur here as well, by the way. That's going to fill up a few minutes of story. And then, oh, there's this other thing too. And it, it's just, it, it's... It need it doesn't have any kind of real focus. It's the location shifts, the the, the characters shift. It's just it it's odd. The whole thing is just strange. It it doesn't quite work. I think it, it's it could work. There are things there that do work, but as a whole, as six episodes, it doesn't. And I think that the main problem is, as we've sort of said, the length. Uh, I'm not going to talk about padding anymore because it'll feel like we're padding out this episode by just talking about padding, but it's something that this season is just so unbelievably guilty of and it it hasn't really been a problem until this point. Um, we've, you know, we've mentioned that stories have padding and that there's a lot of capture, escape, capture, escape and that kind of thing, but this this whole this whole season really does seem to struggle with it. Uh, and it's quite odd. Um, and I don't want to end on a downer. There's a lot to enjoy in season nine. It's, it is John Pertwee and Katie Manning at sort of the height of the powers. It's the master is excellent, as excellent as he was in the last season. Um, there are some great unit family moments. Um, you know, we've mentioned Day of the Daleks, sort of Joe going to feed Benton and then Yates nicking it and, just things like that. There's so much to enjoy, and it, it, it the the team does feel like a family. There is this real sort of sense of, you know, now that Doctor Who has a wider cast, now it isn't just the Doctor and his companion, and we've got the Master and all of these military characters. Um, it it, it just all feels as though it's clicked into place here, and it's like I say, it's a shame that the Time Monster is the last time that all of these characters are are together. Um, and obviously, you know, part of that, um, is due to some very tragic circumstances. Um, sadly, Roger Delgado was only able to do one more story before he died. We never got to see the completion 
of his master's sort of storyline, um, whether the whole big epic Doctor versus Master finale in season 12 would have been any good or not is another question, but it definitely feels like that the characters are heading somewhere and the Master, even though he's only been around for a series, is really well established as the well, the Moriarty to the Doctor's homes, which was always the intention. Um, well, that is all we have time for. Uh, as ever, it has been absolutely great discussing a season of Doctor Who with you both. I'm looking forward to us uh, doing season 10. Um, I think there's a lot more in season 10 to enjoy than there is in season 9. Um, but like I say, it's still it is still a good season. There isn't a bad season of Doctor Who, I don't think. Um, everything sort of has its merits Uh, but we'll leave it there on that note so I will say a big thank you and goodbye to Jimmy see you next time and a thank you and goodbye to Greg a pleasure as always and we will be back for more podcasting in the not too distant future goodbye now